Let's bow for a word of prayer. We'll begin our time in the Word. Father, thank you for today, all the things you teach us, all the things you do for us. You are a great God. Tonight, Lord, as we open your Word, teach us and instruct us in the way that we should go, that we might understand your plan for our lives. Lord, you have taught us much over the last several weeks. And we pray, Father, that we would continue to learn, always be learners of the Word of the Lord, that we might understand more of who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Daniel chapter 12, and we're going to finish Daniel tonight. Daniel chapter 12. This is the 30th sermon in the series. If you haven't been with us, boy, you're, you're, you're coming at the very end, okay? Uh, but you can, let's do it online if you want to. But, you know, we started way back in September. And, uh, of course, we had some breaks during December, uh, and a few in January, but it's run straight through. And uh, so we've had 30 weeks of, of studying prophecy in the book of Daniel. Daniel's the revelation of the Old Testament. And so when you understand what Daniel is teaching, the, the blessed thing for us is that we have the book of Revelation that fills in some of the blanks, that gives us more of the details. And so we are very blessed to be able to have what Daniel did not have. Although Daniel was able to commune with the Lord and, and talk to the Lord face to face, and he was able to communicate with angels and all that kind of stuff, he didn't have the book of Revelation. We do. And so we are truly blessed to be able to fill in the blanks of what Daniel's prophecies are, are all about. And so it's a great study. But think about this. Why is it God wants us to know the future? Right? God wants us to know the future. Today, you have fortune tellers. You have people who like to forecast the future for your life, for your family, for your marriage. None of it's true, all right? You can read your horoscope. doesn't make any difference, right? If we could just determine tomorrow, that'd be a great thing. If we knew what was going to happen tomorrow, if we could spell it out, but we can't, right? We don't know. But yet God gives us information in his word about the events surrounding his coming again. So why does he do that? I thought about that this past week, and I, I began to write down some different things. And so follow this through with me for a second. The first thing that God wants us to understand through prophecy is that he is going to, or prophecy verifies the veracity of God. It verifies the veracity of God. Everything about God is true, Right? But what verifies that veracity for you and me is fulfilled prophecy. So when you think about the birth of the Messiah, where he would be born, we understand that. That all happened as the Bible said. When you understand about the life of the Messiah, the death of the Messiah, the resurrection of the Messiah, all that was prophesied, right? So it just confirms in your mind and my mind that what God says is absolutely true. We can count on what God says. And so when you think of prophecy, God is verifying over and over again that his word is absolutely true. And you can trust him for everything. So if you trusted him early on with prophecy, you can trust him for the end time prophecy as well. Because it's all true. So prophecy verifies the veracity of God. It also ratifies the sovereignty of God. Prophecy ratifies the sovereignty of God. Everything about God being in charge and in control is seen in prophecy. 
That's why the Bible says in the book of Daniel, the, the 11th chapter, these words. It says, for that which is decreed will be done, Daniel eleven thirty six, And then it says over in Daniel chapter 9, it says very clearly, verse 24, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people. God's in complete control of everything. And then the summation of it was in Daniel chapter 4, when Nebuchadnezzar said these words, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? Then verse 37 of chapter 4, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, honor the king of heaven, for all his works are true and his ways just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. So prophecy ratifies the sovereignty of God. So we understand through prophecy that God's in charge of everything. He's never not in control. He's in complete and total control. So God gives us prophecy in his word to verify his veracity and to ratify his sovereignty. Number three, because it glorifies his identity. The identity of God is glorified, it's magnified over and over again. Throughout the book of Hebrews, that word used of our Lord, El Elyon, the the God most high, right? His whole name, his whole identity is glorified by understanding that he is the most high God who rules over heaven and earth, and so his identity is being put on display because of his magnificent providence his grace, his mercy, everything about who he is is seen in prophecy. And so it glorifies his identity. And then you know what? It also purifies our testimony. It purifies our testimony. Daniel, so pure, so clean, so holy, right? That's the way Daniel was. Daniel 1, verse number 8. Remember we told you way back twenty. Uh, eight weeks ago, or 28 sermons ago, remember that? There's one verse with one virtue that gives you many victories. You guys, you guys forgot that? One verse, one virtue, many victories, right? For Daniel had purposed in his heart not to defile himself with the king's meat. If you understand the implications of that and all that Daniel had committed to, he, his whole testimony was clean and pure before the Lord. Because Daniel was able to understand future events, understand the coming of the Messiah. And so what does John say in 1 John 3? That he who has this hope in him purifies himself even as he himself is pure. Prophecy purifies our testimony, that we live clean and holy lives before our Lord. And then I thought about this. Prophecy nullifies our anxiety. You ever think about that? It nullifies our anxiety. We can become so anxious about tomorrow, so anxious about the future. We can be so encumbered by the news media and social media and all that's happening around us that we forget that God's in complete control of all those things. And God's plan is running right on course. And if I can understand that and God's prophetic future for 
the world and my life and Israel and all that God's got planned out, it nullifies my anxiety. And then this, it intensifies my ministry. You know, prophecy does that. It intensifies my ministry. Why? Because Paul said, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. If I, if I want to ramp up my evangelistic efforts, it doesn't happen because I've been trained in evangelism. It happens because I recognize time is short. Today's the day of salvation. And so if I understand prophecy, it's going to intensify my ministry when it comes to sharing the gospel with people, with my own family. I realize that Jesus is coming again. I don't want them to miss out on the blessing. I don't want them to miss out on the coming of Christ. I don't want them to go through the tribulational period. So it intensifies my ministry. It also intensifies my ministry in the church, Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. Because you see the day drawing near. What's the day drawing near? It's the coming of the Messiah. You can't, you can't neglect the gathering together of the believers. Because through that, we stimulate one another to love and good deeds. So if I understand that Jesus is coming, listen... If you know Jesus is coming, you never want to miss church. Think about that. If you know Jesus is coming, you don't want to miss church. You don't want to miss the, 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 the assembling of the believers together. You don't want to forsake that. Because this is how we stimulate one another to love and good deeds. This is how we motivate one another. This is how we move one another, encourage one another to live for the Lord, Right? So prophecy intensifies my ministry. The more I know about prophecy, the more intense I am about sharing the gospel, serving people in the church, making sure I minister to them with my spiritual gift. I want to do those things because I know Jesus is coming again. Very important. How about this? It satisfies, these two go together, it satisfies the inquiry of man and mystifies the curiosity of man. It satisfies the inquiry of man and mystifies the curiosity of man. And both are true. Because you see, I have all these questions about prophecy, right? And so I get, I get my questions answered. But as soon as I get one question answered, I have two that are left unanswered. And once I get another question answered of those two, I have two or three more questions left unanswered. So while it satisfies my inquiry as I seek to understand more and more about the coming of the Messiah and all the events surrounding that, it just mystifies my curiosity because I don't understand. Daniel was this way. We'll see this tonight in Daniel chapter 12. He, he wanted to know more. He wanted to understand. And, and, and the angel's going to tell him, seal up the book. You're not going to get any more information. This is it, Daniel. No more. And so he had all this curiosity. The more answers he received the more questions he had. And so if you're here tonight and you've gone through 30 weeks of Daniel with us, hopefully you have more questions now than you did at the beginning. Because if you do, that means you learn more about prophecy and all it did was raise more questions in your, in your mind concerning the, the, the details and the, 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 the chron, chronological aspect of, of the events and the coming of the Messiah, all those things. And so what it does is it, it mystifies my curiosity. How about this? It solidifies the destiny of man. Prophecy solidifies the destiny of man. 
Because I know that Jesus is coming. I know that there are two resurrections, the first resurrection and the second resurrection. And I know from those resurrections about the destiny of man. I know about the judgment that's going to come. I know how God is going to judge man and what is the end product of that. So it solidifies man's destiny. On top of that, it fortifies man's certainty. It fortifies man's certainty. In other words, the more I study prophecy, the more certain I am of what I believe about the coming of the Messiah. I called a friend of mine the other day, a guy that was my baseball coach in college. He was a Bible professor at the school I went to, and he was pastor at the historic church in in, uh, downtown Manhattan, Calvary Baptist Church in downtown Manhattan, New York, for um, 28 years. And I called him the other day, and I said, hey, listen, out of all the things you taught me way back in the early 80s, that's 1980, not 1880, for those of you who are asking, okay? And I said, have you changed any of your views on the end times? He says, no, not at all. He goes, in fact, in fact, I'm more sure about my views of the end time than I was when I taught you when you were in college. Because the more I taught it and the more I studied it, the more it solidified in my mind what the Bible actually said about the return of the Messiah. And I told him, I said, that's the same thing that's happening with me. That's the true thing. That's what happens when you study prophecy. It fortifies man's certainty about the coming of the Messiah and the events surrounding that. So God gives us his prophecy. He doesn't do it just to fill in blank spots on the page. He does it because of all these things that happen about him and what it does, or what it tells us about him and what it tells us about ourselves and what it does for us. Having said that, Daniel chapter 12, okay? Daniel chapter 12. So if you haven't been with us, boy, I tell you, this is going to be drinking water from a fire hose because you're not going to know where we're at. That's okay. Promise not to drown you this evening, okay? But you need to understand, Daniel chapter 12 begins with a coming scene, a coming scene. And the coming scene is what? Michael the prince, his protection and the persecution of Israel and then the promise of a resurrection for Israel and the promise of the radiance in which they will shine for all eternity. That was last week's sermon. But think about this. It says in verse number two, it says, or verse number, in verse number one, everyone who's found written in the book will be rescued. That's the Jewish people. That's the Israelites. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Now stop right there. So there are two resurrections, right? So if I'm not careful, I'm going to read this as both resurrections happening at the same time. But they don't. There's the first resurrection and the second resurrection. And so if I do not believe that there is a literal kingdom of God upon the earth, I'm going to believe that these resurrections happen at the same time. 
but they don't. And you need to understand this about prophecy, that just because things are mentioned in succession doesn't mean they always happen that way. Think about this. The coming of the Messiah. How many Jews do you think understood two comings of the Messiah in the Old Testament? Probably none of them. Now, I believe both comings are taught in the Old Testament. But if I'm a Jew being raised in Judaism, I don't see two comings of the Messiah. I just see one. Just one. That's why when Christ came, they missed him because they thought he was going to be this great ruler of his people and overthrow Rome and set up his kingdom and rule and reign with an iron rod, but he didn't. So they rejected him because they didn't see two comings. But clearly the Old Testament teaches that there are two comings of the Messiah. And that is reiterated in the Old Testament. For instance, Isaiah 9. Okay? For a child will be born, verse 6, to us, a son will be given. You know this verse, it's on your Christmas cards. We send them out every Christmas. And the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. Wait a minute. Those don't happen in succession. There is a gap. There's a time period in between there. The government was not upon his shoulders in his first arrival. And it says in verse, uh, the second half of verse 7, on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. That didn't happen. But he was born because the child was given, and the son was given, and the child was born, right? So we know that. That's at the incarnation. We know that Jesus came. But it's clearly there are two comings to the Messiah because the government wasn't upon his shoulders. And then if you go over to Isaiah 61, Jesus quotes this one. Isaiah 61, verse number 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives, and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. Stop right there. Didn't happen that way. Because in Luke's gospel in the fourth chapter, he gets up, And he reads Isaiah 61 and stops with to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And the text says he closes the book and says, today, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Didn't say the day of vengeance was there because it wasn't. It wasn't the day of vengeance. You see, clearly, there is a gap between succession of phrases in the Old Testament. And that's made real to us by understanding the Old Testament, uh, the New Testament. Now, same was true in the book of Zechariah. I'm going to show it to you again. I just want you, I want you to get this because you need to understand this. Zechariah chapter 13 says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, verse number 7, and against the man, my associate, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep may scatter. When was that? When the Messiah was stricken and his apostles would flee. That was in his first coming. It will come about in all the land, declares the Lord, that two parts in it will be cut off and perish, but the third will be left in it. Wait a minute. That's the salvation of Israel. That doesn't happen to the end of the tribulation. But clearly, there is a line of demarcation between one set of events that happens and another set of events that happens. Same is true in the New Testament. Luke's gospel. Luke chapter 1. 
says this, verse 31, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. This is the angel speaking to Mary. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. 31, 32, and 33. But clearly, he did not give his son the throne of his father, David, when he came the first time. She conceived in her womb, Mary did. She had a son. She'll name him Jesus. That all took place. But in terms of giving him the throne of his father, David, and him ruling and reigning forever and ever and ever, no, it didn't happen. That doesn't happen to the second coming. See that? So there is a clear understanding in Bible, and these are just a couple of them. That's a few of them. But they're all throughout the Old Testament. So when Remember, when, when prophets gave prophecies, they gave them so that you would understand the, the truthfulness behind the prophet. So whenever he prophesied an event to take place, it would be demonstrated by a fulfillment near to assure a, novel, a fulfillment in the future. Right? Christ prophesied about the destruction of Jerusalem in 32 AD. And sure enough, it happened in 70 AD. Right? And that would assure them, okay, in the Olivet Discourse, that the succeeding events that would take place would come true as, as well. Because he made a prophecy, it happened just like he said, not one stone will be left upon another. It happened just like he said, okay, to assure the fact that the rest of Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse, would happen exactly as he said. Get that? That's so important to realize. You, you need to get this. Why? Because the people who don't believe in a literal kingdom have a trouble with, with Revelation 20. Because there is an there is a intricate period of time called the millennial reign of Christ that happens when Christ comes again and the judgment throne in the new heaven and new earth at the end of the millennium. So you need to understand that when you understand prophecy and all that God has for us. So, you had this coming scene. He tells them, very simply. Now, at that time, what time? The time of the Antichrist in his rulership, okay? At that time, Michael the prince, who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise, and there will be a time of distress, such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who was found, written the book, will be rescued. In other words, coming a time of great persecution time of great distress. So this coming scene has been painted. That was last week's sermon. And then you have a, the content all being sealed. which says in verse number four, but as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Conceal the book, Daniel. This is it. There's nothing else to give you. I want you to conceal it not because I don't want anybody to read it, but for the sake of preservation. Why? Go on. Many will go back and forth, and knowledge will increase. There's going to come a time <clears throat> when many people will go back and forth, to and fro, searching for truth. How do we know that? Book of Amos. Amos, 8th chapter. 11th verse, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, 
when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine for bread or for thirst or for water, but rather for the hearing of the words of the Lord. And people will stagger from sea to sea, and from the north even to the east. They will go to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. In other words, God's strictest judgment upon man is his inability to find what God has said about what has taken place. Today, if you, if you go to Petra, down in the, in the wilderness, there in the land of Edom, there are many people that have taken Bibles, little New Testaments, some Old Testaments, and put them in the crevices in, in Petra because they believe that's where the Jews will flee during the tribulation. Maybe it is, maybe it's not. No one really knows. But because of its secluded area, because there's only one way in and one way out, okay, and because of Revelation chapter 12, people think that that's the place they're going to go. So they hide, take Bibles and they hide them in the crevices there. Why? So that the Jews will know and be able to read the book of Daniel. So the angel says, seal up the book, conceal it, preserve it. Why? Because there's coming a day when people are going to search for the answers. They're going to break the seal, they're going to read the book, and they're going to know what's happening now. And so that's going to be true. Don't you think that when the Jews flee Jerusalem at the abomination of desolation, they're going to be looking for answers? Because you see, they erected a temple in Jerusalem for the person they thought was the Messiah. Because after all, he fought wars for them. He won victories for them. He gained their allegiance. He confirmed a treaty with them for seven years. But in the middle of that time, he sets up his kingdom, decides he wants to be worshipped, that he himself is God. And he desecrates the holy place. And so now, they're bewildered. They missed the Messiah again? How'd they miss him again? Right? But he's not the real Messiah. He's the anti-Messiah. And so they're going to have to look for answers. Where are the answers? Well, you got the two witnesses in Revelation 11. You got the 144,000 Jewish evangelists from Revelation 7. You have the angel that flies around in mid heaven in Revelation chapter 14, right? So you have the gospel being presented, but the truth of God's word, the Antichrist will burn all the Bibles. He'll get rid of all the truth about God's word because he's the one anybody reading the truth. And they'll be looking for answers. And the book will be preserved until the end. That's what it says. But as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Many will go back and forth, and knowledge will increase. So, verse 5, Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others were standing, one on this bank of the river and the other on that bank of the river. Remember, he's at the river Tigris. We saw that in chapter 10. Remember, 10, 11, and 12, one vision, 10, the introduction, 11, the revelation, 12, the conclusion, right? So you have two angels, one on either side of the river, one on one bank, one on the other. And one said to the man dressed in linen, who's the man dressed in linen? Again, Daniel chapter 10. It's the pre-incarnate Christ. And it says, who was above the waters of the river. So you have two angels on either side of the river, and he had the man dressed in linen above the river. And they say, how long will it be until the end of these wonders? 
So they're asking. Okay, now why would the angels ask a question? Why would the angels ask the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ, a question about the end of these wonders? Well, angels are not omniscient. So they don't know everything, right? So they don't know necessarily how long it's going to be for the abomination of desolation to take place and the last half of the tribulation. They should know because in Daniel chapter 7, verse number 25, Daniel was told how long the tribulation would be and how long the great and terrible day of the Lord would be. We know the tribulation is seven years, but the great and terrible day of the Lord is the latter half of that tribulation. So they should already know that. But they're asking a question because there is a, a curiosity on the, on the part of the angels. We know from Peter's epistle, they're curious because they look into salvation because they don't understand the salvation of man. They don't get that. They don't understand that, right? So there is some question concerning the end. So they ask. And maybe they're asking for Daniel's sake. Didn't really tell us why. They just want to know how long until the end of these wonders. So, verse 7, I heard the man dressed in linen, that's the pre-incarnate Christ, who was above the waters of the river as he raised his right hand and his left toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. And as soon as they finish shattering the power of the holy people, all these events will be completed. Okay? So now they know. How long is it going to be? A time, one, times, two, and a half. All right? So that's three and a half years. How do we know that? Because the book of Revelation tw- tells us the time frame of the tribulation. It tells us the time frame of Satan's time in which he persecutes Israel. And it's a time, times, and a half a time. Or 1,260 days, or 42 months, or three and a half years. All those are spoken of in the book of Revelation. And so the pre-incarnate Christ tells them this is how long it's going to be until, it says, as soon as they finish shattering the power of the holy people, all these events will be completed. It will be completed at the end of the Antichrist going after Israel to seek to destroy them and to wipe them off the face of the earth. That's what Antichrist wants to do. Why? Because if every Jew dies, there's no need for the Messiah to come back. No need. Because he can't redeem his people. So if he kills every Jew that lives, he wins. But he can't. Because we know from the scriptures in Romans 11 that all Israel is saved. And we know from last week and the week before that and the week before that that the all is the one-third of Zechariah 13 that come through the tribulation that are still alive. And that one-third lives. And that one-third are the ones that are rescued in verse number 1 of Daniel chapter 12. They're redeemed. They're rescued from the persecution. They will be saved. And so when Satan's fury is unleashed on Israel, okay, that time ends at the end of the three and a half years. Verse 8, as for me, I heard but could not understand. So Daniel hears but does not understand. Now remember, Daniel's right there and he hears. He hears the words of the Lord, but he doesn't understand. Why? Because the more answers you get, right, the more questions you have. Because he wants to know more about the details. He wants to know how, how much 
how, how severe the punishment will be for his people Israel. What will they all go through? Because he doesn't know. We have a greater picture because of the book of Revelation. But Daniel didn't have the book of Revelation. He just had the four visions in the book of Daniel. He had Nebuchadnezzar's image. Remember, all four visions in that image all are intertwined together. They all come together to show you the picture of world empires until the final world empire is destroyed by the king of kings and lord of lords who comes and sets up the ultimate empire, a theocracy here upon the earth. And so he has questions. So he says, as for me, I heard, but could not understand. So I said, my Lord, what will be the outcome of these events? He said, go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up until the end time. Daniel, that's it. You're not getting any more. That's all you're getting. You can imagine being pretty frustrated, right? I need some more answers. Give me some more details. Explain to me more about what's going to happen. The Lord says, that's it. It's all been concealed. Seal it up, Daniel. This is all you're going to receive. A little bit of a mild rebuke, but truly, Daniel, his curiosity is peaked to the highest extent. And so it says in verse number 10, many will be purged, purified, and refined, but the wicked will act wickedly, and none of the wicked will understand, but those who have insight will understand. He says, listen, Daniel, know this. I'm not going to give you any more details, but understand this. Many, many of your people will be purged, will be purified. Isn't that what the whole vision's about? Daniel 11, verse number 35, when it said these words, Some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine, purge, and make them pure until the end of time because it is still to come at the appointed time. That was the revelation of what would happen to Israel. So God is going to reaffirm and confirm in the mind of of Daniel, listen, many will be purged, many will be purified, many will be saved, many will be washed, many will be cleansed. It's going to happen, Daniel. You can bank on it. It's going to happen. And that many, of course, is only a third according to the book of Zacharias. So it says these words, from the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Now, wait a minute. Hold on a second. So from the time the feasts are done, remember, when Antichrist comes, right, they erect a temple for the Antichrist. And all the feasts are being enacted once again in Jerusalem. And so they're carrying on the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Lights. They're doing all these, uh, celebrating Passover, all these things under the reign of Antichrist, who they think is the Messiah. And so when those feasts are complete, he says, and the abomination of desolation is set up, that's in the middle of tribulation, Daniel, 70-week prophecy, Daniel 9, 24 to 27, as quoted by Christ in Matthew 24, right? The abomination of of desolation, which was spoken of by Daniel the prophet, all that's going to take place. When that happens, okay, to that time, That completed time is 1,290 days. But he just said it was going to be 1,260 days. So why is there an addition of 30 extra 
days? It's a good question, right? But look at this. It says, how blessed is he who keeps waiting and attains to the 1,335 days. That's another 45 days. So we got a 75-day period at the end of the abomination of desolation and the three-and-a-half-year time in which the great and terrible day of the Lord happens upon the earth with all the judgments, the seal judgments, the trumpet judgment, the bowl judgments, all those things happening, right? But yet there are 1,200, it says, 90 days and 1,335 days. So why is that? I have no idea. That's not true. I do have a little bit of an idea. We know when Christ comes back again, there's going to be a judgment. It's called the judgment of the nations, right? It's called the sheep-goat judgment. Does anybody know where that judgment takes place? Well, turn to Joel chapter 3. I'll tell you where it takes place. Joel 3, verse number 1. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and then I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance, Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations." And they had divided up my land. So, God says, when he restores the fortunes back to Judah and Jerusalem, and when he does that when he comes, comes again, he's going to judge the nations. He's going to judge them in the valley of Jehoshaphat. So it says, verse 12, Let the nations be aroused and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. This is the judgment of the nations, as spoken of by Christ in Matthew 24, the judgment of the sheep and goats. Sheep are the believers, the goats are the unbelievers, and it's the judgment of the nations. Put it in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes. In the valley of decision. Where's that? Well, the valley of decision is the valley of Jehoshaphat. The valley of decision is called the Kidron Valley. So we know exactly where that is. So when you, when you look toward the Mount of Olives from the city of Jerusalem, when you look eastward, there is a descending slope, and there's a valley that rises up toward the Mount of Olives. And that valley is the Valley of Jehoshaphat. It's called the Valley of Decision. It's called the Kidron Valley. It's all the same place, right? It's like, it's like the Jezreel Valley is the Valley of Megiddo. All right, is the Valley of Esdralon. This has three names. Same valley, same location, just three names. All right, like, like the Sea of Galilee is the Lake of Gennesaret. Same sea, just another name. So the Valley of Decision is the Valley of Jehoshaphat is the Kidron Valley. There we know God is going to judge the nations. There he will sit and judge the nations. 
he goes on and says, the sun and the moon, I'm sorry, multitudes and multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth tremble. But the Lord is a refuge for his people and a stronghold to the sons of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. So Jerusalem will be holy, and strangers will pass through it no more. There's going to be a judgment. And that judgment is going to take place in the valley of Jehoshaphat. So we know, if you look at the surrounding chronology of the coming of the Messiah, Revelation 12, Israel flees to the wilderness. We know from Isaiah 63 and several other passages in Isaiah and Malachi that when the Lord returns, he has a sword that is sent and bent on Bozrah, which is the ancient capital of Edom. And so in Isaiah 63, when Isaiah sees the coming of the Messiah, he sees him already with his robes dripping with blood, meaning that the battle's already begun. So there is no battle of Armageddon. It's called the Battle of Bozrah. Happens 196 miles south of that. And we know that the, the blood of man flows up to the horse's bridle for, for 200 miles. It's 196 miles from Bozrah to the Valley of Ezrael on the Valley of Megiddo. And so the Lord makes his way. Revelation 19, he returns. He speaks the word and people are obliterated. He stands on the Mount of Olives. That's Zechariah 14. He splits the mountain, right? And then he goes into the judgment of the nations and judges them. How long will that take? 30 days maybe? I don't know. Can he do it quick? Yeah, he can. But if you read Matthew 25, he will go through each person and tell them, when I, when I was hungry, you didn't feed me. When I was thirsty, you didn't give me something to drink. When I was in prison, you didn't visit me. When I was naked, you didn't clothe me. And they will say, well, when did we see you naked or in prison or thirsty or hungry? He says, because you didn't do it to the least of these, my brethren, the Jewish people. Right? Therefore, depart from me into everlasting judgment. He will do with each individual person who didn't know the Lord, the judgment of the nations. That could take 30 days. could take more. Who knows? But he also has to set up the kingdom. He has to erect a temple. Zechariah, Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. Zechariah 6, 12 and 13. The Lord erects the millennial temple, which is the fourth temple, right? The third temple is the one built, the Jews built for Antichrist, and the fourth one will, will be the one that Christ builds himself, right? How, how does he do that? You just speak a word and it happens, right? But he does that, has to set in order all the things in the millennium because you and I are ruling and reigning in that kingdom. We know that from the book of Revelation, Revelation 20, Revelation chapter 2. We will rule with an iron rod with our Lord in that kingdom, right? So our Lord's going to have to set up all those different places upon the planet. How long does that take? I don't know. 30 days? 75 days? I don't know. But it does say these words, blessed Blessed is he who keeps waiting and attains to the 1,335th day. Other than that, I have nothing else for you. That's all I got, okay? 
And then it says this in verse 13. But as for you, Daniel, go your way to the end. Then you will enter into rest and rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. This is how it ends. But you, Daniel, listen. As Christ did in Luke 19, occupy till I come. Daniel, go your way. Do what you normally do. Now, remember, Daniel's ni- almost 90 years old now. Almost 90. Daniel, go your way. Occupy till I come. Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3, since all these things are going to be torn up, blown up, what manner of person ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Same thing. Because all these things are going to happen, Daniel, go your way. Do what it is you do. Explain to people. Why? Because you will enter into rest. You're going to die, and you will rise again. You will be resurrected. And and for your allotted portion at the end of the age. In other words, you're going to receive your inheritance, Daniel. It's all going to come to you. This is how he concludes the book of Daniel. Daniel, listen, seal up the book, preserve the book. I'm not going to give you any more details. This is it. But I want you to continue to do what you've always done, being the man I've determined you to be, because one day you're going to die, but be assured of this, you'll be resurrected, Daniel. And you will receive your inheritance. See, that's the greatest motivating factor for all of us. What is that? You're going to die and rise again. And when you rise again, you're going to receive that inheritance, as we talked about on Sunday, that's undefiled, that's imperishable, that never fades away, that's reserved in heaven for you. Daniel has a reservation. Daniel has an inheritance that he will receive. So after all the prophecies, after all the prayers of Daniel, all the prophecies given to Daniel, all the precision behind all those prophecies, all the visions that he has received, all the ways that God has used him to stand strong, all these 75-plus years, he's told at the very end, Daniel, just go your way. You're still going to die, but you will rise and you will receive your reward. It's going to come to you. That's how it ends. And so you realize that that Daniel ends not knowing nearly what you and I know. Now think about that. Daniel does not know what you and I know. Remember what the Lord said about John the Baptist? Greatest man ever born of a woman was who? John the Baptist. That's what Christ said in Matthew 11, right? No greater man ever born than John the Baptist, born of a woman. But, 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 he says, qualifies it. Those who are least in the kingdom are greater than the greatest man ever born of a woman. How can that possibly be? How can we, who are least in the kingdom, be greater than the greatest prophet ever born of a woman? Because of all that John the Baptist did not know. He did not know anything that you and I know. He knew nothing of the church age. Had no idea. 
the Spirit of God indwelling you? He didn't know anything about that. How would he know? Christ in you, the hope of glory? That was the mystery concealed in the old, revealed in the new. He didn't know that. The translation of the church into glory? The coming of the Messiah at the end of a tribulational period? The great and terrible day of the Lord? John the Baptist didn't know any of those things. But you do. I do. And here's Daniel. He wants to know more, but God says, that's it. Nothing else. And yet here sits you and me with the entire scriptures. We have Zechariah's prophecy. We have Daniel's prophecy. We have the promise of the prophecy of Isaiah and Jeremiah, Amos, Malachi, the minor prophets, the major prophets. And then we have all the New Testament, the Olivet Discourse, Second Thessalonians, Second Peter, the entire book of Revelation. We have all that. We should motivate us to study it all the more. Because we told you, the number one topic spoken of most in Scripture is faith. The second one is prophecy. It takes faith to believe what God says about the future. And so we've had the opportunity for 30 weeks to study the book of Daniel and look at the prophecy concerning his coming again. And hopefully it motivates you. Hopefully it intensifies your ministry. I would pray that after all these weeks, you'd be more gung-ho in serving the Lord than ever before. So motivated to live for him. So motivated to, to live a pure and holy life for the glory of his name. I know it does me. The more I study the end, wow, the better I can stand in the present, right? And so if you don't get anything but this, out of the 30 weeks, get this. The clearer you see the future, the cleaner you stand in the present. That really is all you need to know about the book of Daniel. If you see the future clearly, you'll stand clean in the present. You'll stand more courageous in the present, more confident in the present. But it all is predicated on your understanding and seeing the future coming of Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for tonight. A chance you give us to study your word. What a blessing it is for us to gather together. Thank you for these 30 weeks. Thank you for these, these things that you've taught us, all of us, that we can learn together, grow together as a body. We are grateful. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.